0: today, assuming I've done my math correctly, I've lived on this planet for 15,512 days. And what surprises me is not just I've lived that many days, that is a lot of days, but what also surprises me is how few of those days I actually remember. Every once in a while, I'll try to think back to when I was a kid, or I'll try to recall some of the earlier days in our marriage, and when I do so, my memories are usually foggy at best. All the days just kind of seem to blend together. And if I'm being honest, sometimes if I even try to think back a month or two, those days are foggy too. Specific memories of specific days seem to elude me, and I suspect that will only increase as I get older. But be that as it may, there are still a few days that I remember vividly. Our wedding day, the day that Dawson got sick, the first time we went to Congo to meet Karis, and other days of similar importance like that. But of all the days that I remember vividly, I think the days I have the most specific memories of or the day that our first child was born. Noah was born on December 29th of 2006, and some of my memories from that day are just oddly specific. I remember that the University of Kentucky was playing in the Music City Bowl that day. And the thing is, I don't even care about Kentucky football at all. But for some reason, we lived in Kentucky at the time, and it was on the news, I remember. That was happening that day. I remember Saddam Hussein's a- execution was in the news as he was scheduled to be executed on the early morning hours of December 30th. I remember other stuff too. My parents playing cards in the waiting room. Our friends, the colliers coming to visit. And of course, I also remember some of the details surrounding Noah's birth, the intensity of the labor process, problems with the umbilical cord being wrapped around his neck, and the sheer shock of what childbirth actually looks like. But perhaps one of the things I remember most about that day is the doctor's declaration. It is a boy. Since it was our first child, we had elected not to find out beforehand if the baby was a boy or girl. With our next two kids, and obviously with our adoption as well, we found out beforehand. But with Noah, we did not. And I'm glad we didn't, because there's something about that moment that was truly unique. Like every parent in the same situation, we had our guesses if it was a boy or a girl, but we were truly in the dark. And so the moment of that doctor's declaration was a moment of great anticipation and suspense and surprise and joy. Now, we would have been equally happy to have a girl, so the moment of surprise wasn't tied to the fact, or or joy, wasn't tied to the fact that he was a boy. It was simply tied to the fact that we now knew he was a boy. And in that moment, when the doctor declared, "'It's a boy,' I think both Tony and I knew inherently there was some gravity in that moment. It's a boy was not a meaningless statement. It was a huge part of his future. Listen, I'm well aware that gender is a hot topic in our culture today. I know there are many who would argue that gender is a social construct. In other words, something we've invented as humans or something that we get to determine or we get to decide. But I'm just telling you, on the day my son was born and the doctors declared it's a boy, two things were immediately apparent, both by observation and by intuition. One, God is the one who determined Noah's gender. The doctor did not have to debate when Noah came out is this a boy or a girl? He did not have to wait for Noah's opinion. It was obvious to anyone who had eyes. Secondly, the declaration that he was a boy, I think we inherently knew in that moment, would shape his personality and his trajectory. In other words, it was not meaningless. It was a huge part of who he was. It was part of the way God designed him. And that reality, by the way, is not just confirmed in my labor room experience. More importantly, it's confirmed by the testimony of Scripture. As we'll see today in Genesis 2, gender has been a part of God's plan from the beginning. Even before sin entered the world, God created us male and female. It was part of his good and beautiful design. That's what I want us to see this morning. Now having said that, before we turn our attention to the text, I want to pause here for a second. I just want to acknowledge something. The gender conversation that's taking place in our culture right now is real. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's everywhere around us. Furthermore, the confusion that many are experiencing related to this very issue is real also. Perhaps some in this room have loved ones that are confused or hurting as it relates to this topic. Perhaps maybe even some of you are hurting or confused. And my goal this morning is not to belittle or to dismiss or to talk down to those who are in that boat. I have no reason or desire to go on an angry rant this morning or to rail against the state of the culture or bemoan the fact that things are the way they are. On the contrary this morning, my goal is simply this. I want to offer hope and a path forward as it relates to this topic. Hear this. If you're here this morning and struggling with the issue of gender, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you'll leave here this morning feeling loved and cared for. But hear me. The best way I can offer hope... And the best way that I can love and care for those who are hurting is to point them to the beauty of God's design. No one who's ever walked on the face of this planet has loved people like Jesus did. But Jesus did not love by affirming people in their sin or by denying God's design. Rather, he loved them in grace and truth. He was gentle and lowly, compassionate to sinners, but Jesus always spoke the truth. He always pointed to God's good design for the world. And so that's my goal this morning. As much as I can, I want to walk the path that Jesus did, which is to say, my goal in talking about this issue is to be a person who speaks with both grace and truth. I know there's a lot of confusion that's taking place in our culture right now surrounding this topic. And even in the church at large right now, there's a lot of debate about what it means to be man and woman. And my goal this morning is to simply try to be faithful to what Scripture teaches. That's my goal every Sunday, by the way, is to simply be faithful to what the Word teaches and to point to the goodness and beauty of God's design. And hear me, this is important. God's design is good, and it is beautiful. And so that's where we're going to start here in Genesis 2, 18 to 23. If you want to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word, standing is a simple way we can just demonstrate that we believe the word of God is the word of God, and as such is due our attention. So Genesis 2, 18 to 23 says this, beginning verse 18. The words are on the screen, by the way, or you can listen as I read, or you can follow along in your own Bibles the word of God says this beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "This at last is bone in my bones and flesh in my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." We'll stop there for today, you can be seated. So anytime you talk about gender and gender roles, which our passage does today, it's possible, especially given our cult- current cultural climate, that controversy will follow. But I just want you to know, when I read Genesis 2, 18 to 23, I do not see controversy. Rather, I just see beauty. I see the beauty of God's design, and I see the beauty of God's character. And so what I want to do this morning is simply point out three beautiful aspects of God's design and of God's character that we see in this passage. That's the plan this morning. So the first thing I want you to see is this, the beautiful equality of man and woman. Now, without question, there are major differences in the way that God has created male and female. Those differences are evident even in the church nursery, in the way that boys and girls just play and act differently. And those differences are certainly evident in our passage today, and we'll get to those here in just a few minutes. I think it would be a mistake to ignore those differences. But before we talk about them, we need to point out that there is an equality that exists between men and women. Now, in saying that men and women are equal, I'm not saying that we're the same, or that we have the same gift sets, or that we have the same temperament, or that we have the same roles, or that we think in the same way. Again, the differences between men and women are apparent, even in this passage, and we'll get to those differences shortly. So when I talk about equality, I'm not saying we're the same in design, or the same in role, or the same in function. What I am saying, though, is this, that we are alike and equal in our humanity. We are made out of the same stuff, and we are made in the likeness of the same God. We see this in the latter half of the passage, verses 20 to 23. Now, it's helpful to keep in mind where we are here. In Genesis 2, 4 to 25, which obviously this passage is part of that section, we have a close-up view of day 6 of creation. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, we saw saw days 1 through 7 as a whole. But now in Genesis 2, 4 to 25, we have a close-up on day 6. And what we learn in verses 20 to 23 is that on day 6, God brings the animals he's already created to Adam to name them. And as God does this, it becomes apparent that none of the animals are a helper fit for Adam. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and from Adam's side, God makes woman. And Adam's declaration in verse 23 helps us to understand and see that men and women are made of the same substance. As Adam puts it in verse 23, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, In other words, what he's saying is this, at last, there's one who is like me. Men and women are made of the same stuff and of the same substance. That's what Adam's saying. This is entirely consistent, by the way, with what we read in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 27, we were told that God created men in his own image, or man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if we put chapter 1 and chapter 2 together, we can say this, both male and female created by God. Both male and female created in the image of God, and both male and female are created of the same stuff and the same substance. Now it's true that God created the animals and the plants too, but it's clear from chapter 1 and chapter 2 that humans are just different. We're made in God's image. We're made differently than the rest of creation. And this applies equally to men and women. We are both image bearers. We are both made of the same stuff and substance. As such, while we may have many differences, we have equality too. I have much more in common with my wife or my sister or my mom than I do with a male dog or a male lizard or a male cow. I mean, think about it this way. When I'm hurting, or I need help solving a problem, or I need someone to partner with me in ministry, I don't call over our dog, Dr. Burroughs. I don't say to him, Dr. Burroughs, you're a male. I think you get me. You can help me solve this issue. You can sympathize with me. Let's go do evangelism together, Dr. Burroughs. I don't do that because he is a dog. Instead, in all those issues, I call my wife. I ask her about her advice. I try to get her opinion. Now as a woman, she's different than me, gloriously different than me, but we are made of the same stuff. We are made of the same substance. We are both image bearers. There is an equality with my wife that I share that I don't share with my dog. And to be clear, while being male and female is part of God's good design for us, the most important part of our identity is that we are image bearers. And if we are in Christ, we are part of his family. In other words, my identity as an image bearer, as a follower of Christ, is of much more significance than my identity as a male. So while there are many differences between male and female, let's make sure that we first understand our equality, because that equality is part of God's good and beautiful design. It's part of the beauty of this passage. Both male and female image bearers, both male and female made of the same stuff and substance. But having said that, it's also important that we see in this passage a second beautiful thing. And the second beautiful thing is the beautiful differences between men and women. Now again, before we get to those differences, let me just be clear to reiterate what I just said. Men and women are equal in dignity, equal in value before the Lord. To suggest that men are more valuable than women or women more valuable than men is to seriously misunderstand our nature as humans. Again, we are both image bearers, both made of the same stuff and substance, but equality in value and equality in dignity does not imply that we're the same or that we have the same roles. And that's evident even in the very beginning of this passage. Look again at the way the passage starts in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So here's the problem I think we have with verse 18. When we hear the word helper, I think we have some unhelpful, no pun intended, connotations that come to mind. More specifically, I think we sometimes assume that being a helper implies that the helper's task is less significant than the one that they're helping. And understand why we sometimes think that way, because we sometimes use that word that way. For example, if you're doing some woodwork in your house and your three-year-old son comes over, you might say, oh, do you want to be my little helper? But we all know in that moment that your little helper is not as helpful as you would like them to be, right? In that scenario, helper does imply a task of less importance. But let me be absolutely clear here. This is not the way the word is being used in Genesis 2. In fact, it's not the way the word is used in the Old Testament as a whole, Of the 19 times that the word helper or some variation is used in the Old Testament, 16 times God is the helper. So the fact that woman is described as a helper fit for man does not imply that woman is inadequate, that she needs to just be a helper. No, in this case, it means she is essential to carry out his task. In Genesis 2, a helper is one who supplies strength in an area that is lacking. For man to carry out the task that God has given to him, or or that God has placed with him, he needs a woman to supply what he lacks. Now, implied in that is something really important, that women have different gifts and strengths that complement the different gifts and strengths that men have. The two are not competing with one another. Rather, they're complementing one another. Think of two puzzle pieces. In fact, this morning I went down to the four- and five-year-old nursery, and I decided I would rate it. So if you're a four- and five-year-old, and you're missing some puzzle pieces this morning, I'm really sorry, all right? I found a puzzle piece here, right? If you have one puzzle piece, this is just a gorilla sitting in some sort of, some sort of object, right? You, you look at the puzzle piece and you think, oh, that's great. But if you had two of the exact same puzzle pieces, it really wouldn't help you to make much sense of this picture. But actually, it's when the two puzzle pieces go together, and I should make sure my alphabet's in the correct order, that then the puzzle starts to make sense. Now you can see, oh, we have a train here. And we have an alphabet train, right? If these two puzzle pieces were the exact same, it wouldn't make any sense, we wouldn't have the big picture. We would just have two gorillas, right? It's when the two puzzle pieces go together, then you can start to understand, oh, I see the big picture here. My point is this, that they complement one another, and the way they complement one another helps us to see that the sum of the whole is greater than the two individual parts. To use another analogy, think of an orchestra or a football team. By the way, I tried to think, can we get an orchestra or a football team here? I thought that might be too much trouble. So I'll just give you a word picture here, right? Think of an orchestra or a football team. If everyone in the orchestra played the same instrument, you wouldn't have an orchestra, would you? You would just have a bunch of people playing the same instrument. And while that's okay, it's not near as beautiful as the complementary nature of the whole orchestra playing together. Similarly, in football, no matter how great your quarterback or how great your running back or wide receiver, if you don't have linemen in block, it will not matter. You need both the linemen and the skill position players to have a great football team. It's the complementary nature of the linemen and the running backs or the complementary nature of the flute and the violin that make the sum of the whole better than the parts. In the same way, what I'm saying is this, that men and women complement one another. We need one another. Men need women. Women need men. We make each other better because we have different skill sets and different temperaments and different gifts. There's a reason why men typically flock to certain occupations and women to others, because God has made us different. And those differences are good. And I'm just telling you, these differences are apparent even early on in life. This last weekend, my sister and her husband visited us. They have three boys, a 12-year-old boy, an 8-year-old boy, and a newborn. And it was pretty interesting watching our boys interact with their boys, because they just did boy stuff. At one point, they started playing a game called, which they called "Sting Pong." which is apparently a variation of ping pong. If you lose the point, the person who loses the point has to turn around, lift up their shirt, and then the other person gets to smack the ping pong ball at their back. The boys came upstairs, they had ping pong ball marks on their bodies. Now I'm not saying this is wise, I'm not saying it's logical, I'm not even saying it's sane. I'm just telling you this is what they did. By way of contrast, when my daughter Kara says somewhere in the house they do not play sting pong. The games she plays with her friends are much different in nature. Now, I'm not trying to overgeneralize here. I'm not saying that boys should play sting pong. I'm not even sure if we were being good parents in this case. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that all boys would want to play or that no girl would ever be interested in joining. I'm not trying to overgeneralize here. I'm just sharing that story to say this men and women, boys and girls, they're different. Stingpong pong is not a test of biblical manhood. That's not my point. It might be a test of foolishness. That's what it might be. But my point is, we're just different. We have different temperaments, different gift sets, different skills. And listen, and this is important, that's okay. In fact, it's not just okay, it's good, because it demonstrates the creativity of God. It demonstrates that He made us different so we can complement one another, so we can see we are different, but together we are better. Now, having said that, I think it's also worth pointing out that God doesn't just give men and women different strengths and gifts. But he also gives us different roles so as to demonstrate the differences between men and women and to exhibit to the world the complementary nature of our relationship. I think that's implied in the helper language that's used here in Genesis 2 and it becomes even clearer in the New Testament. In both 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, Paul takes elements of this very passage in Genesis 2 to argue that men and women have different roles in the church and in the home. Specifically, in those passages, he says that men are to take the lead in both the home and the church. Now, hear this. The purpose of those roles is to highlight that God has made us differently, that we complement one another. Men are not called to lead because they're smarter or more gifted. I mean, for crying out loud, they're the ones more likely to play sting pong. So we're not saying that they're more gifted. We're just saying they're called to lead because God wants the world to see men and women are different. Not competing with one another, but complementing one another. That we have gifts that that bind us together and make us better together. To argue that men and women should carry out the same roles in the church and the home is to miss what I think is the clear teaching of Scripture, but also to misunderstand the purpose of role distinctions. God gives us different roles so that he can highlight to the world around us we've been created differently to show God's creativity and to show that we were meant to complement one another. Now let me say something here just for a second about leadership. The leadership that God calls men to is not an authoritative leadership of domination. Men are to lead by taking responsibility, by doing hard things, and serving those under their leadership. The man who leads by manipulating, blaming others, domineering those under his leadership is not carrying out the role that's been given to him by God. He's instead a worldly and wicked caricature of leadership. To lead biblically, hear this clearly, is to lead like Jesus. How did Jesus lead? By serving by sacrificing, by loving, by doing hard things, and by setting aside his interests for the sake of others. That's what we're called to lead us. But make no mistake, men are called to lead and to take responsibility for leadership. It's not an accident that in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, God does not first go to Eve and say, okay, what happened, Eve? He doesn't go to Adam and Eve together and say, okay, guys, what, what went on here? Instead, he approaches Adam Because Adam was given the role of leadership. That's implied in the helper language of verse 18. It's implied in Adam naming the animals and Eve, and it's spelled out clearly in the New Testament. Now, in saying that, I fully recognize what I just said is not something that everyone in our culture would agree with. It may not even be something that you agree with, but that's okay. My job this morning is not to appease the crowds or to affirm the direction of the culture. For that matter, on the other end of the spectrum, my job is not to unnecessarily provoke or try to stir up trouble. My job, as it is every single stunts, every single Sunday, is to do one thing: to try to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. And in the case of Genesis 2, and in the rest of the Bible, I think it's clear: God created men and women differently, with complementary roles. He did not just create us as human; He created us male and female. And part of the way He demonstrated the differences between male and female is by giving us different gift sets different temperaments, and different roles to play. And here's what you need to understand this morning. This is part of his beautiful design. Listen, I'm not bitter that those in our culture are trying to flatten distinctions between men and women or trying to make it seem as if those distinctions don't exist or don't have meaning. It doesn't make me bitter, but it does make me sad. And it makes me sad because the pathway to joy is always found in following God's good design. And that's the great irony of what's happening in our culture right now. People are running from God's design because they think it will make them free. They think it will bring them happiness. But in doing so, when they're running from God's design, they're actually becoming slaves to the gods of the culture, and they're forfeiting the joy that could be theirs if they were living in God's design. And that's the thing you need to understand this morning. God's design is beautiful, and it brings joy. I've potentially used the word beautiful this morning, to describe God's design in Genesis 2 because I don't want to use the word good in a generic way. Sometimes we'll say things like, oh, French fries are good. Well, that's true, but we mean more than just good when we say that God's design is good. What we're saying is it's good and beautiful. And it's beautiful because it brings joy and it's pleasing when we're following his design. So hear this, it's true that men and women are beautifully equal. It's also true that we are beautifully different. That's part of God's good design for us. But I also want you to understand one last thing here in this passage. I think this is key. One last beautiful thing that we see in this passage, and that's this, the beautiful provision of God in creating us male and female. I think it would be easy for us to read Genesis 2, 18 to 23, and come to the conclusion, this is a passage about man and woman. Now, certainly men and women are part of the passage, but I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point here is ultimately that God is providing That God is caring for his people. In fact, listen again to the way the passage starts in verse 18. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now here's the really striking thing about verse 18. Throughout chapter 1, God over and over and over again declared his creation to be good. In verse 31 of chapter 1, he declared his creation to be very good. So the fact that now in chapter 2, God sees something as not good is startling. It even takes us back a little bit. How is this possible? But remember, we're going back here a little bit in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we're days 1 through 7. Genesis 2, we're zeroing in on day 6. And apparently, there was something that was not good on day 6. And what God sees that is not good is that man is alone. Now, by the way, the fact that he sees that as not good, I think, has implications beyond just men and women. And for that matter, beyond marriage, I think it speaks to our need for community as a whole and our need for one another. Since God is triune, He is inherently within community Himself, and He's made us in the same way. It's not good for us to be alone. We are meant to live together. We are meant to pursue God together. And that reality is stressed throughout Scripture. But while that's broadly true, here in Genesis 2, the focus is on God remedying that which is not good by providing a helper, in this case, a woman. Now notice, and this is important, in this passage, God is again the main actor. We've seen this throughout Genesis 1 and 2, that God is the one doing the acting. Verse 18 here, I, God speaks, he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 21, God puts man to deep sleep. Verse 22, God makes woman. Verse 22, God brings woman to man. Genesis 2 then is ultimately about God's provision. Genesis 2 may be a passage about the beautiful equality of man and woman, the beautiful differences between man and woman, but ultimately, it's a passage about God's extravagant care. God loves his people, and he bountifully provides for them. In the case of our passage today, he sees something that is not good, and he fixes it. And God's provision brings joy to man, which is something we see very clearly in verse 23. All right, so verse 22, God brings the woman to man. And then in verse 23, we read this. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now in verse 23, we see what we have here are the first words that man speaks in all of scripture. And make no mistake about it. These first words are words of joy and delight. They come in the form of a poem because they are expressing Adam's exuberance. If you read verse 23 in a monotone voice, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You are missing the point, right? Because Adam is bursting with joy here in verse 23. He's saying, at last, at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. To borrow a word phrase from one of my pastor friends, it's as if Adam is pulling a Napoleon dynamite move here. He's saying, yes, right? This is not a moment of cautious optimism. Or a moment of lukewarm praise. This is a moment of serious rejoicing. Adam is rejoicing because God has provided. Adam needed a complimentary helper and God gave him that helper. And Adam's response is one of joy. At last, finally, yes. And that's the thing you need to understand here about Genesis 1 to 3. There are some controversial topics in these chapters. Most notably gender, which we're talking about this week. And marriage, which we'll talk about next week. And yet all these topics are set against the backdrop of God's generosity and his kindness. He gives us his design not because he's trying to limit our freedom, but rather he gives us his design because he's trying to maximize our joy. God's design for male and female is born out of his character of generosity and love. And Adam's response in verse 23 clues us into that reality. He doesn't say, oh, why did you make us this way? Instead, he says, at last, this is good. Adam rejoices with gratitude because he sees the provision of woman as God's kindness. He sees the fact that they've been made differently as something that illustrates God's care. And listen, the way that Adam responds should be our response too. We should embrace God's roles for men and women because we know they are a demonstration of God's care for us that he beautifully provides for us. Now having said that, of course when we talk about God's provision, the way that God's provision is most evident in the, is that he sent his son to die for our sins. The same God who created us male and female is also the same God that loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In other words, what I'm saying is this, I don't think you can read Genesis 2 and forget what's happening in John 3, which is what I just quoted from. The two go together. Yes, God has a particular design. And yes, he expects us to live according to that design. But that design is good and beautiful and part of God's overall disposition of generosity towards us. And we know that he cares for us. And we know that he wants what's best for us because he sent his son to die for us. So if you're wondering when you read Genesis 2, well, is God really good? The answer is yes, he is. And the reason we know that in part is because he sent Jesus to die for our sins. So let's learn then to embrace God's des- good design, not just because we should, but more importantly, because we see it as an extension of his good character, that he loves us so much, he provides for us. He cares for us. He created us male and female, beautiful in equality, beautiful in differences, and he did so because of his great love. And listen, that indeed is beautiful. So church, my encouragement to us Is simply to live in light of his good and beautiful design. To live in light of his bountiful provision. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage. We want to embrace the way that you have made the world. And we understand that actually living this out is complex, and it's hard to figure out sometimes what this looks like. But we want to acknowledge that you have made men and women beautifully equal that we are both image bearers, that we are both made of the same stuff and substance, but also we want to acknowledge that you have made us beautifully different. And we want to live in light of that, Lord. We want to live in light of the fact that you have made men and women with complementary gifts. But also, maybe most importantly, we want to live in light of the fact that these things that we see in Genesis 2, your design is an extension of your character, that you love us and you care for us. And one of the ways that you've loved us and cared for us is by designing the world the way that you have. Help us to embrace that and see it as good and see it as part of your good character to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.